one thing all of us have in common is we had a mother and father, a man and a woman, no exceptions. We are all the product of those that evolutionarily speaking were fit enough to make it to the next round. In the course of human history, there have been exceptions to the sexual dimorphism such as celibates, homosexuals, and bisexuals, but they always were at the fringe and never considered a healthy part of society. All of this has changed, however, in the past few decades for reasons of population control, a means to make money, or worse. Author Scott Howard joins us this evening to discuss his book, The Transgender Industrial Complex, which meticulously documents the danger behind this agenda and who is behind it. Well, I'm not a crook. I've burned everything I've got. Military-industrial complex. A new world order. But we are here to destroy the control over the industry of other people. I did not trade arms for hostages. It's been time Hello and welcome to the myth of the 20th century. Uh, today we have a full crew and we are joined by a very special guest uh, by the name of Scott. Uh, he is an author. He wrote a book about the transsexual industrial complex. Uh, hello, Scott. Thank you for coming on. Hello, glad to be here. Thank you guys for having me. So are you uh, or in any way a member of the transgender uh, party? Uh, I have to say that I'm not. Um, I, uh, my, my pronouns are uh, fuck and you. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Good wow. thing we're not on YouTube so anymore. <laughs> No, Sorry, actually, I, uh, I think I think okay. if this was a pro tranny show, we would still be allowed on YouTube. Uh, oh, so sure. Maybe we yeah. should rebrand. This is actually a uh, a positive review of transgenderism, transsexual. Uh, I saw great as a uh, unfortunately well known phenomenon. So, well, maybe we can start off with uh, uh, Scott. Lay down the basics for what is the difference between transsexualism and transgenderism, because they're used interchangeably by our um, media. Wait, we should do media. some basic shilling first. Scott wrote a book, and the audience should be made aware of where they can find Scott's book. Sure, sure. So, uh, well, yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll shill. That sounds great. Um, so it is called the Transgender Industrial Complex. It is available through Antelope Hill Publishing. Uh, Barnes and Noble, I believe, is carrying it, uh, banned by Amazon, um, because you know it speaks the truth more or less. Um, and uh, yeah, that, that's that's really about it. Fledgling Twitter account, um, nothing, nothing really beyond that. But if if uh, listeners find themselves intrigued by who, what, where, when, how, uh, put the book pulls no punches it's dense um but it's uh comprehensive 
and I, I, I would recommend getting it, of course, <laughs> or I wouldn't have spent the time writing it. But, um, but yeah, that's that's the thing: the transgender industrial complex on Antelope Hill Publishing. Well, I, I was mentioning briefly before we uh, got started that one of the uh, indirect reasons I found myself amongst the uh, scene of dissidents on the internet, at the very least, um, was. I, I was just leading my cosmopolitan bugman life in a major metropolitan area. And I, I just noticed um, a lot of media uh, emphasis. And this is, of course, after the, the gay marriage thing got passed. And that was that was a, a big, a big focus point of the media, of course. But after that, they they seemingly had to go to the next chapter uh, and Bruce Jenner, uh, getting the ESPN, uh, lifetime achievement award for wearing a dress, uh, not his Olympic, uh, achievements, uh, and the wall to wall media coverage and cover to cover, uh, coverage on various, uh, magazines and fashion magazines pushing this guy. I, I just, it's something clicked in my brain that something was wrong with the uh the mainstream and i i didn't quite understand why they were doing it i'm not really sure still but i have my theories at least but that was one of the reasons i really started doubting uh the direction of the culture and the leadership behind it uh and it's sort of i think that coincided we're with we're all old enough to remember because i i don't i also i remember when that vanity fair uh, issue came out with Bruce Jenner uh, dressed up as a woman on the cover and it was available on display at you know your local pharmacy or grocery store or whatever and I think that we're all old enough to remember a time when prior to that this would have been seen maybe not as legally criminal unfortunately but certainly morally criminal behavior to expose your, yourself that way in, in front of children who are in the basically in the candy aisle uh, I, I that was it was a big moment for me too I remember that uh, Scott what what uh, piqued your interest in this topic and drove you to write such a exhaustive treatment of it well um yeah, I, I certainly remember that. Uh, actually, as I note in the book, it was two weeks following the Supreme Court decision. Um, Jenner was on the cover of Vanity Fair and a uh, pretty seamless handoff, if you ask me. Uh, obviously coordinated. Um, and as I outline in the book, uh, one of the main goals had been to sort of normalize the homosexuality thing before uh, getting into this next uh, frontier, let's call it. Uh, but anyway, uh, yeah, right. Probably right around then, uh, I became aware of this being a thing. Um, and I sort of followed it off and on, um, you know, trying to figure out what exactly I was looking at. <laughs> um, and probably around two, two or three years ago, um, you know, I had seen some things that had come out and I really just wanted to know where the hell it came from. Um, and I started doing some research, um, spoke with a good friend of mine who actually was uh, thinking about writing a book about it. Um, ended up kind of taking the idea and running with it and just trying to 
diagnose where it where it all came from because it's it really seemed like it just came out of nowhere for most people and it probably did about 18 months of research or so uh found a lot of good sources but nothing that put all of the pieces together uh, originally i was going to try to write an article that maybe for the occidental observer or uh one of these other sort of dissident right publications but it just kept expanding, expanding. And, and before I knew it, I had 200 something pages. And uh, I sat on it for a while and I wasn't sure if it was anything that anybody would be interested in. Uh, and I kind of took another look at it and I, and I thought that it even still then did not go far enough or deep enough. Uh, and so last year, uh, two years ago, actually, um, calendar years, uh, went back into it with a vengeance um, and then last year, probably, uh, mid, mid year, finally got it, got it finished. Um, but I, I can't say there was any one catalyzing moment. Um, it really just felt like, you know, this was something that, that I was seeing pushed, uh, relentlessly. Uh, and I just wanted to know where it came from. Not, not, um, uh, yeah, I would say that there was not one one specific moment, although the the general one certainly I think stands out in my mind, just being right so close to the the heels of the Supreme Court uh, decision for the gay marriage stuff. And uh, you know, I think that right around that time as well was when a lot of the racial unrest was uh, kicking off too. And as I note in the book, you know, the same actors uh, are orchestrating all of these things, so they are not. Um, isolated incidents yeah that was so a, where does this begin like <laughs> this is the uh, for people who you know i i encourage everybody to read the book just because it has a work of like journalism almost and historical analysis it's extremely interesting um but sort of for the the gloss version where where does this come from like as, as far back as the 1990s i remember this being like a uh a punchline uh for you know any random comedy like austin powers like she's a man baby uh etc cetera, etc cetera. and then a switch flipped and uh suddenly we're supposed to take this very seriously so you know how far back would you like to go and kind of uh conveying where where you think this came from yeah uh, absolutely no i remember uh ace ventura pet detective is one that comes to mind as well uh, but um no it, it, as far as an articulated thing um i think we have to look at probably uh weimar germany and, and maybe a little bit before that um as i note there are some things that are floating around before that uh uh Interestingly, all sort of originating from the same tribe, um, <laughs> as, as, uh, as anyone who reads the book will quickly notice, uh, if, if they are uh, the type of person that notice patterns, they will see that there are uh, a particular overrepresentation there, as you will probably imagine. Um, and of course, the, the uh, Institute for Sexual uh, Research, I believe, is the English translation for it, uh, Magnus Hirschfeld uh, in, in Germany, uh, in, in, uh, in Weimar, Germany. And uh, that, that institute 
um, and the attendant uh, advocacy organizations. I'm gonna I'll call them. They're they're really more like uh, agitation uh, organizations, but it's mostly Jewish communists uh, and anarchists going and basically uh, agitating for so-called homosexual rights. And then they have this institute that they set up and they start basically creating out of whole cloth uh, a, a made-up discipline of, um, well, Hirschfeld called them uh, uh, transvestites and, and basically said there were like five different kinds of uh, uh, types of sexuality and there were different variants of, of uh, the genders and these kinds of things. Uh, it, it's just made up. It, it was just made up by these people, um, you know, about a hundred years ago. But like I said, there were some ideas around it, um, uh, particularly, you know, uh, transvestism and whatever before then, um, as I note, going back to, you know, pretty much, uh, I mean, as far back as you want to go, there are ideas of, um, you know, if you want to look in ancient texts about, you know, some gender uh, transformations or whatever, um, at a sort of uh, metaphorical level, but not a thing that is, is real, uh, quote unquote, um, as far as mm -hmm. something that one could like do or be. Yeah. Um, what I find interesting is that the modern uh, gloss of this, as opposed to, um, you know, kind of the, the Weimar depictions that I have seen or these bullshit, uh, I think mostly bullshit, kind of either made up or um, so kind of reinterpreted as to be uh, meaningless, like, oh, two spirit, therefore, like this... Uh, this tribe had the same conception of like political transsexualism uh, as we do now, but the political uh, uh, connotations of it, I guess uh, I've heard the term tranissaries uh, used sort of denoting their uh, particularly uh, aggressive uh, role in uh, crushing dissent uh, and in uh, brigading uh, online communities in particular. And I was wondering uh, if you had encountered, uh, there's a blogger who goes by the name of Spandrel, um, and he has a, uh, a theory or notion of uh, bio-Leninism. And I was wondering if you were familiar with that. Uh, uh, no, I'm not, actually. So his, uh, his thesis um, is that basically the left uh, finds, quote-unquote, marginalized groups that are um, woefully ill-equipped uh, to function in society um, by virtue of you know not being particularly intelligent or suited to a modern capitalist society or having some uh, bizarre mental condition, uh, as in this case, and uh, basically puts them into positions of power so that they are beholden uh, to the left because, of course, no sane regime would uh, want anything to do with these people. So they're sort of uh, tied to the mast in terms of their, their allegiances. They have no other option than basically increasingly deranged full communism. Um, that's the sort of uh, gloss of the theory, but uh, I was wondering what you thought about that role of uh, the sort of transsexual uh, politics as this hyper-aggressive uh, progressive uh, form of politics? Well, yes, definitely. Um, 
I, I definitely agree with that. And I see that. And it's basically the idea of you're taking these aggrieved, uh, maladjusted type people and putting them in, in a position of power. Well, they will be intensely loyal to the, um, to the system uh, because they know that they are certainly not desirable elements that anyone is going to want to have anything to do with outside of this uh, narrow scope within the system. So yes, I, I agree with that 100%. And I think that this is any time you see uh, any sort of push from this direction, this sort of hive-like leftism, I'll call it, um, you're, go you're going to see people like that attaining positions of power uh, because they will defend those positions and they will defend the regime to the death because they, they, they owe them everything. So I would agree with that 100%. Um, I think that, you know, of course... We it is an interesting place to be because a lot of what we're seeing is driven by neoliberal capitalism, but socially they are seeding. This is why it's that whole cultural Marxism thing. But you, you go back to the October Revolution in, in Russia, you're going to find the same thing. You're going to find Wall Street behind it. But the idea is this sort of social aspect of uh, almost a kind of Harrison Bergeron-like uniformity. Uh, these are the people who are going to be going in rigidly enforcing the orthodoxy. And I, I think that that is absolutely what's going on with these people. Uh, it, there is also, of course, as I, as I note in the book, there is a very weird uh, and extensive sexual component to this with these people, uh, which includes both the elites and the sort of defectives that they're grooming. Um, and I think that, you know, this is where we see all the pedophilia stuff come into to play. And I think that that is also very much a part of it. Um, I think that what we're dealing with is a very powerful, <clears throat> excuse me, a very powerful negative force um, that is that is quite frankly evil. Um, and uh, it, it is not just power. Uh, it is a very perverse and degrading kind of power that they want to exert over others. Um, and I think that these people, many of them are products of molestation or uh, brainwashing techniques of some kind or, or grooming or any of these combinations of things. Uh, and that is where they kind of find themselves uh, in the embrace of this ideology, which, which turns out foot, foot soldiers for it. In the, uh, in the third chapter, which is when you really start to get into... Um, the networks that have been created, these hierarchical networks of uh, sort of control and discipline that are mostly backed by the same click of people over and over again. I think the Open Societies Foundation shows up probably 30, 40 times in your book. Um, but in the third chapter, you note that there's, there's basically two fronts, there's two vectors. One vector is the utilization of existing institutions that uh, you have the UN uh, General Assembly adopting certain development goals or resolutions and so forth. Uh, touch on this. You have UNESCO, for example. You have the Dutch government. Um, you have various bodies at the EU level in Europe. Um, but you also have the creation or rebranding uh, or reutilization of either small existing institutions or new ones like um, the GSAs, which I had never heard of, 
uh, I didn't know these existed, but you, the GSA network, uh, which you said, uh, formerly the Gay Straight Alliance, they changed their name to the Gender and Sexualities Alliance Network. And uh, they have 4,000 clubs across the U.S. They distribute education materials to universities. And you have some interesting quotes here from um, an Allison Hope writing for Slate magazine. Uh, uh, basically, uh, she says in, in this, uh, he's, you know, you kind of say, once again, we see the absolutely egregious falsehood that somehow the right is, quote, a highly coordinated, well-resourced political movement that is targeting the most vulnerable among us, our children. And so the attack vector is to utilize uh, either existing institutions or new ones. And while it seems to be that both are the ultimate goal is to go after children, and then any accusation of this being weird or kind of aggressive is then reversed and that you are going after children for um, attempting to oppose some of this. And, you know, you kind of highlight that no matter where you look, whether it's in Europe or in the United States, whether it's an existing institution or a new one, the same faces pop up. Open Society, Ford Foundation, Arcus Foundation, Weingart Foundation, Foundation for a Just Society, California <laughs> Endowment. I mean, the William and Flora uh, Hewlett Foundation and the LGBTQ Racial Justice Fund. Uh, and it goes on, including the Tikkun Olam Foundation as well makes uh, an appearance here. So can, can you kind of describe maybe a little bit more how many networks do these people create and how often do they attempt to utilize money or influence to capture an existing state or political body or NGO or whatever, and then turn it towards this cause? Well, absolutely. So it, they have um, a few basically, I would call them like lead dog type funds. Um, and they're usually from, again, open society, as you mentioned, uh, the Gill Foundation, uh, Arcus, um, a lot of these people are, in the case of Gill uh, and Arcus, they're homosexual bankrollers, uh, Soros, obviously, with open society, these sorts of things. And they are, they basically seed money out to, uh, I believe the open society in its existence has given money to around 50,000 different organizations. So they basically create the illusion that there is a grassroots movement going on by creating all of these very small organizations staffed by basically, let's call them the Tranissaries or the SJW types or all these types of things. Um, there are extensive networks that collaborate on all sorts of projects. So when you get to the conclusion of the book, I don't really want to spoil it because I, I like to set it up for people so they can see uh, how COVID and the Great Reset and the food supply and everything else all dovetails with this. It's, it's pretty mind-blowing, actually. Um, the, uh, uh, the network is the thing. Uh, it is a network um, that, that runs all this. Um, and it's no surprise that they are also the kind of, they are also uh, very heavily enmeshed in the ideology of transhumanism. Um, and so all of these things kind of 
intersect and they have their finger in basically every pie. Now, they, the money that's seeded out is absolutely key because uh, these activists, quote-unquote, uh, have been able to essentially uh, create both demographic and ideological change on a widespread level from, uh, I talk about the state of Colorado, um, we are seeing it in real time with places like Virginia, and we can see that all of these things tie together. So it's not just networks in terms of funding and uh, the way that they organize and the way that they operate, but also in terms of uh, the kinds of interlocking uh, or, or linkage of issues. Uh, and you see this all the time with like climate change meets LGBT migrants meets whatever. And they mix it all together and then they seed out, you know, 25 different new organizations that all have the same mission statement. Uh, and they recycle the same types of senior figures through all the different organizations. And they, you know, get a bunch of foot soldiers to go out and protest and all the rest of it. And it's all I believe it's that's all... Uh, that's called intersectionalism. <laughs> yes, yes, that's exactly. The, the preferred academic term. Well, I mean, you have uh, you have another bit here. Um and it's on Manitoba, uh, uh, Canada. And, you know, we kind of joke about Canada all the time. Um, and they deserve it. But Manitoba is not a place where I would have assumed this would be uh, a, an active project. Um, when you think Manitoba, it's basically rural Canada, industrial Canada. And uh, you have a very, very key piece here, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read it out because I think it describes this shell game that you're describing, that these people are playing, where there's, uh, I think in any other circumstance, we might suspect money laundering, just the way this appears to function. So you say, the Manitoba Teacher Society acted as a partner organization for a project led by Catherine Taylor at the University of Winnipeg primarily funded by the Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council of Canada with additional funds provided by the Manitoba Teacher Society, EGALI uh, Canada Human Rights Trust, the Legal Research Institute at the University of Manitoba, and the University of Winnipeg with additional authorial, uh, authorial support for Taylor from other academics from the universities of Winnipeg and Manitoba and Elizabeth Meyer, who wrote uh, at the University of Colorado, co-editor of Gender and Sexuality and Education and Supporting Transgender and Gender Creative Youth. So there's this, it's kind of impossible to decipher really what these people are doing on some level, but effectively the same institutions and the same people create this, um, instead of creating the myth of a grassroots effort, they're creating a myth of broad spectrum academic support when it's really just the same groups pouring money into each other's causes or into each other's research, which then gets pooled into the same research. And it creates this illusion of, well, all of these civil bodies and NGOs and academics came together at this conclusion when that's not it at all they're 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 linked at the hip to each other and there's uh, it starts to become at least especially the third and the fourth chapter of this book which are just fantastic research um makes it kind of clear to me that there's a very specific clique of people who are pooling money and pooling research 
and basically endorsing each other and helping each other out to give the illusion of some kind of real hard um, philosophical support for the transgender cause. And it seems like all of this just sort of materialized in the last 20 years, if that. It just kind of came out of nowhere. And suddenly you have all of these experts in the field and all of these bodies like the Manitoba Teacher Society, which has probably been around for a long time, I assume, um, is an existing institution that gets involved with people who were nobodies and all of a sudden are seen as experts in the field of gender studies. It, the, it's very, very strange. Um, and you kind of hinted that this seems to be the, the norm in nearly every state in multiple countries and multiple continents now is the same pattern of operation. Someone provides the money, then the money is, is, is effectively being pooled and then it's farmed out to various organizations to do either the grunt work or the philosophical work or the networking to achieve a goal. And so you're kind of left with this assumption, these people must be meeting or coordinating in private to do something. And whatever they're doing, it's, it's very strange, but it, you know, there's only so many levels of separation or degrees of separation between someone in one of these groups and maybe the Prime Minister of Canada or the President of the United States or the head of the EU Council or you know, something like that. Like, it, it's inevitable you're going to quickly find links to the highest levels of government. Which is really, I think, what they're what they're after. They're after government support, inevitably. Yeah. Yes. Absolutely. And uh, you know, it, the articulated discipline of transgender studies uh, is yet another thing that was created out of whole cloth. Probably, I would say, uh, late eighties, early nineteen nineties starts to emerge. Uh, and really, yeah, you you said it about the last twenty years or so. Uh, it's it's classic Frankfurt School stuff. It's just another discipline. Uh, as I as I talk about, basically after this, uh, a proto trans institution at the Institute for Sexology or, or Sex Research uh, there is is, is shut down. Uh, a lot of the people are basically uh, through their contacts in the United States are basically getting visas to come over here. Uh, and by the mid 1930s, have set up shop uh, predominantly at Columbia University, but a few other places. And uh, I talk about it in the chapter Boaz Constrictor, the whole Boazian anthropology stuff, which uh, Kevin McDonald covers in Culture of Critique. Uh, it, that ties into the exact same group of people, uh, and that that idea of uh, uh, of these kind of critical theories and these other things, uh, they're all kind of tied in together basically take over departments and they, they give each other awards and they give each other advantages and they, they basically uh, seed the institutions with their own folks who then squeeze out the legitimate academics and suppress uh, any, any criticisms or any objections. Uh, and of course, they uh, very quickly co-opting some of the most elite institutions um, they're able to peddle this you know, garbage, junk science, made up stuff. Uh, which again, as I, as I catalog in the book, is not even real. 
you know, there are only two sexes. And that, that, that's part of the earlier question uh, um, that I was asked. I actually didn't end up answering it uh, was what's the difference between transsexual and transgender is I think that they, they're preferring transgender now because they want to go with this whole multi-gender spectrum nonsense as opposed to just male, female binary. Um, and I, and I do, uh, going back to the comment about what this supposedly a right wing attack on children or whatever is, is obviously ludicrous. Um, but that's, those are the things they do. It's all part of the rhetorical playbook for, uh, projection. So whatever they are doing, they are accusing the opposition of doing, uh, it's all psyops. It's all psychological warfare. It's gaslighting. It's all these things. Uh, and they're very good at it. I mean, as I mentioned with Netflix, uh, one of the descendants of Edward Bernays is a founder of Netflix. And then they're putting stuff like cuties out there. You know, the, the French film with the, the, you know, the 13 year olds blowing up condoms and whatever. <laughs> yeah. um, so it's not a yeah. surprise. It is not a surprise. But that, that's the playbook. Um, and it's been going on for a long time. And whether it's psychoanalysis, whether it's anthropology, uh, or whether they're just creating new disciplines like transgender studies. Uh, it all goes back to the sort of Frankfurt School cultural Marxist trash. And the money is coming from uh, basically high finance mostly, um, but also a lot of individuals who have made money, uh, a lot of them in tech. Uh, Peter Thiel is another one that we're seeing there. Um, with a lot of this stuff, and they are either homosexual, uh, many of them are homosexuals themselves, and they are uh, viewing this as, well, my theory is, um, it's sort of an outsider, uh, they, they understand that they are um, alien uh, in some fashion, and they are, I believe it is a combination of a revenge on normality uh, and also, of course, there's something darker in, in a lot of these people, too. Again, as a corrupting factor or a grooming factor, it comes back to a lot of it, the sexuality stuff. Do you have anything in well, particular have... from Peter Thiel that uh, you've found in your research? Uh, I do recall during the uh, 2015 run up to the 2016 election with Donald Trump making an appearance. Peter Thiel was one of the few, uh, quote unquote, conservatives, mind you, uh, especially from Silicon Valley to come out and basically support Trump. Uh, and he gave, I believe a speech at CPAC or some similar, uh, faux conservative, uh, organization where he actually addressed the crowd. And at the time, one of the big, uh, media talking points was the issue of uh, transgender bathrooms. And he basically said, and I think he doesn't deny that he's homosexual, but he basically said, why are we even talking about this? Who cares? Uh, quote unquote. Uh, so I've never gotten any trans agenda from him. Uh, I'd like to hear from you, though, where you've seen any anything otherwise. Uh, well, now, that, that, that's an interesting one, because he's less uh, directly supporting transgenderism as more he's into the transhumanist thing. So he's in with these, uh, you know, Ray Kurzweil. Yeah, uh, I can't stand Martin, Kurzweil. Martin, no, no, no neither can I. I can't stand any of the, the transhumanist people. I think they're all awful. Um, it, it, but he, you know, he's, he's more into this, you know, weird kind of uh, 
transhumanist stuff, which which does connect with the transgender. There's a lot of overlap. Martine Rothblatt is one, the uh, the quote unquote richest female CEO <laughs> in the in the country. Is it used to be a man, um, and, and all these sorts of things. So I, I think it's less. Uh, Thiel is less uh, directly with transgenderism as more transhumanism and also the the uh, if you read some of the stuff Whitney Webb's been doing he's a lot of this uh, hyper surveillance state kind of panopticon wrong yeah. think type Palantir. stuff. So he's yeah, yeah so he yeah, exactly so he's not exactly a, a, a fixture in the uh, transgender industrial complex but he's a fixture in the in the bigger picture. Well, it's fascinating that to see this happen in real time, where uh, even within the kind of broader uh, LGBT uh, sphere, I guess there is a funny story. I couldn't find the uh, the original, unfortunately, but uh, apparently uh, the uh, the trans uh, brigade has successfully uh, taken over the uh, Reddit slash R slash lesbians uh, subreddit. Uh, with predictable results, uh, a mass exodus of uh, of the uh, the biologically uh, female uh, lesbians to uh, Reddit real lesbians, uh, which was then promptly banned because, of course, you can't uh, be exclusionary like that. <clears throat> um, it's, uh, I think that it's fair to say now that uh, because. Know, quote unquote gay rights are so well established and there's absolutely no legal disability uh whatsoever uh, in fact massively the opposite uh that all of those organizations appear to have pivoted to some variation of uh either trans ideology or uh testing the waters at much worse things this dovetails with a question I had too, so I'll jump in as well. I had in my notes, um, uh, Hank basically asked it, but I would add to that. So you're seeing, and I, I, I really hoped I would never formulate a sentence like this, but uh, you're seeing basically a conflict with what you may call orthodox homosexuals, or even worse yet than that, traditional homosexuals. <laughs> Uh, I know that, for example, Camille Paglia has run into some trouble with uh, with this new breed of, of perverts. Well, I think Paglia. Can you has, explain uh, this a little bit for the audience as well as maybe uh, flesh out the dynamics of why is it that these people seem to always be winning out in these internecine conflicts amongst uh, sexual deviants? Yeah, well, of course. So. Um... It's I mentioned this in a, in the turf wars chapter. It's basically the traditional uh, feminine. It's it's well look. It's it's like the um, any kind of revolution uh, inevitably starts eating its own. So once you've got the family pretty well broken down, once you've got gay quote gay rights pretty well enshrined, once you've got all of these things, uh, you can start essentially cannibalizing the movement and enforcing ever more strict ideological purity. Now, it's, it gets more and more deranged, of course, as these things do. And so anyone you're, you're seeing, uh, whether it's J.K. Rowling or uh, Paglia or any of these people, uh, just getting destroyed by the, the trans uh, 
movement or whatever. Uh, you're seeing this because they no longer have any use for them. So they're discarding them and they're continuing to get more and more extreme uh, as they kind of progress through their reign of terror. And I think that's exactly where we're at. And I think that, uh, you know, they, it is going to get more and more extreme and more and more uh, diabolical, really, in the things they're pushing for um, as this, uh, as we progress along the timeline that they have set out. Uh, and they've been pretty adamant about where it's going next, and that's, of course, pedophilia. Um, and as I mentioned, the connections with not just all of these political and uh, social, quote, movements, but also uh, with sexuality and these other things. But I also talk about uh, overlap with things like NAMBLA, uh, you know, and these other things that are very much kind of on the periphery. Uh, and there are relationships that are not wanting to be talked about with foundational figures, but they're there. Uh, they are there. And I think that this is, this is where that's going, and they're going to continue to police these things, their orthodoxy, which will get more and more extreme. Um, and it, as the way the, these things have always progressed, anytime there's any kind of uh, extreme, uh, yeah, again, kind of, I'll call it a hive-like movement originating from the left. We've seen this many, many times from the French Revolution on down. So you have a, uh, an interesting bit uh, about Alfred Kinsey. And uh, Alfred Kinsey, basically, a, a, what would you call him, a, a failed <laughs> academic, failed scientist. Much of what he wrote or postulated was reversed. You, you note that he was the man that uh, came up with the infamous uh, 10% number, that 10% of the male population in the United States is uh, gay one way or another. Um, well, he, uh, you know, he kind of creates this, in 1948, the sexual behavior in the human male is this volume that he publishes, and he kind of goes on to uh, found the Alfred Kinsey Institute, and you know, all of his research is later postulated down into gender theory and sexual theory, and uh, he said in 2019, the Kinsey Institute was favorably cited by many major media outlets, such as the New York Times. Uh, and on December 31st, 2019, Kinsey Institute research fellow Justin Lee Miller, Lee Miller uh, appeared on an episode of Dr. Phil. Uh, their fall 2019 lecture series featured transgender activist uh, Jessica Lynn. Um, so why is it that, you know, people like Kinsey... Um, basically just made up bullshit for his professional career are now immortalized as somehow pioneers in this field. And does that kind of fit a pattern of failed scientists or um, failed academics who delve into the realm of transgenderism, whether it's the actual sexual reassignment surgery back uh, at Johns Hopkins, which they've now kind of backtracked on or the, uh, the, the supposed hormone imbalances or the supposed mental state and all this sort of stuff. Is there kind of a, a, a click here of people that basically screwed up or, or proven to have been wrong on at least one other major field and then became sacrosanct when they started preaching the, uh, the, the holy gospel of transgenderism? 
Um, yeah, I, I think there's definitely something to that. I think also it, it kind of goes along with the idea of the uh, uh, the Tranisaries, actually, because these are not people who will make it on their own as legitimate uh, scholars or researchers. They've, they've got nothing to contribute. Um, so they become political pawns. Um, they enforce the orthodoxy. And, of course, if you are trying to create the impression that you know, uh, the, the homosexual thing is a sort of wellspring. And there are, there are so many out there. I mean that I, I, to some degree, I do believe it's, they're trying to create a self-fulfilling prophecy. Uh, I really do think as you, as I note in the book, um, with the sheer volume of people who are identifying as trans, um, I think that this has a lot to do with that as far as trying to create a new reality. Um, that they are basically trying to meme into existence or quote unquote research into existence with this stuff. Uh, and I think that these, uh, these figures will of course, jealously protect their status. Uh, but they also will create the garbage science that will form the basis for the anti-reality. Uh, and this is part of what I was saying about gaslighting and these other things, the less real it is, uh, the more powerful it becomes in its own right. I mean, until slash unless the spell is broken, in which case the entire thing comes crashing down. Uh, but that requires, of course, not people to understand. I hate to say it this way, but less about people understanding that it's obvious uh, bullshit and more about uh, the will to confront it. Um, now, that's, that's a topic for another time, I think. But uh, it, first, of course, people do need to understand that it's bullshit uh, before they can confront it, but it's not enough. And unfortunately, if you just were to voice your opinion, uh, well, I shouldn't say opinion because it's, it's the truth. Uh, if, if you were to voice that this is something literally just a bunch of people made up, um, you'll be destroyed. I mean, you'll be destroyed. This is the most uh, jealously protected class at the moment um, with the, tr the trans people. And they will, uh, the establishment will go to any lengths to protect them, and they in turn will do the same for the establishment. Well, it seems like a way in which the establishment. Oh, well, aren't can... the emperor's new clothes fantastic? Well, that, you're right. The, the chapter entitled "The Emperor's New Penis" is a uh, is a uh, reference to that. Well, it, it seems like the establishment might be doing this. Um, maybe to an extent to create a fleecing operation. Um, one of the, you touched on this a little and, and, you know, prior to reading the book, I, I had done some of this research and there are subreddits out there. There are forums, there are sites, there are uh, journals where people who have had um, the assignment surgery or the, I'm sorry, the reassignment surgery, the, uh, the, the hormone therapy, the whole, the whole lot of it, the plastic surgery, the implants, all of it. Um, they almost always talk about how they regret it. I mean, these people will go on at length about all of the medical problems they're having. And what they generally do touch on is that they're having financial problems because these treatments are expensive. The post-op is expensive. The surgery is expensive, and it never ends. 
And what you realize is that these people become um, permanent op- money-making operations for the medical establishment, for the, for the pharmaceutical industry, for psychotherapists, all of them. Everyone is, is you know, just making hand over fist every time there's a new trans person. And maybe all you get out of them is the, the never-ending therapy sessions. And maybe you get, you know, on top of that, maybe you can also fleece the hormone therapy and the plastic surgery and all that. And then maybe you can get the coup de grace and you get them to flip their, their sexual hardware uh, and then you have a lifetime supply of cash flow from that one person, hundreds of thousands of dollars. Um, and so it seems like to an extent there's this, the medical establishment is holding up people as somehow pioneers or visionary or, or uh, you know, sort of like Promethean figures for figuring this stuff out. But really, it it seems like a way to just steal money from people and convince them that they need all these things. Uh, This is not necessarily the case, I think, in in places like Europe or Canada, but in the United States, that that is how the American healthcare system works. You know, this this is a a money-making operation. Uh, And I don't know if you would agree with that, that this, that appears to be part of the motivation here is just, it's effectively a tax on the population and it's a way to extract more revenue from them. Oh, yes, abs- absolutely. Um, it, it's a huge wellspring. Uh, it's a gold mine, really. Uh, you're right, from all the different surgeries, the procedures, even the just consumer economy with the, you know, having to get all the new clothes and everything else, as right. I mentioned. It's uh, the new makeup and the, yeah, the, new, uh, the new this and the new books. Like there's a whole book industry. Yeah, it's been created out of whole cloth, just about trans, whatever. I mean, some like all these books were written in the last ten years, and yeah, hundreds it, of them. They, they're all garbage, and you know, unfortunately, yeah. they're probably outselling mine. But whatever. Um, in, in a in a sane world, this would not be the case. But that's such as such as the price you pay when they they try to suppress the truth. I mean, within three weeks of the thing being on Amazon, they the the Trinitary swarm was after. Uh, the book tried to get abandoned, and, and well, they were successful. But uh, that's not because there's any validity to their position. It's simply because they know that I am challenging the position. Now, the thing is, I feel bad for these people. I don't want them to be uh, slaves to this system. But the problem is that they're so brainwashed that I'm suddenly the bad guy. Uh, you know, and it is what it is. Okay, but. Yeah, it's a massive, massive uh, billions upon billions of dollars uh, in the various elements. So it has a political purpose. It serves an economic purpose. I'd like to dig a little further into this convergence of perversion and disintegration. And one thing that I talked when I have some, you know, I talk to friends or just people I'm, you know, friendly with. About these kinds of issues, uh, when the when the transsexualism thing comes up, the way I tend to explain this is prior to reading in your book. But what I would typically say was that you, I would I would tie it in to the race question, and namely that you're in a situation in which young white children are you know constantly told 
that uh, they're, you know, they're they're basically evil or wicked or something like this, and that they the school system and the the media culture elevates the the colored children, and they're basically thrown this bone that if you become some kind of sex deviant or you mutilate yourself, that you can maybe join your your colored brothers and sisters in in the ranks of ascendant oppression or something like this. So I'd like to address the race question and its relationship to this problem, as well as I'd like to hear your take on the relationship with the farm with the pharmaceutical industry and the drugs that are being given to children and how this ties in as well. Uh, well, yes, absolutely. So I, I think it's it's a uh, it connects to uh, race and to to the war on men as well. So you, there's a a reason I think that you see a huge number of uh, men, quote unquote, becoming women, uh, and not quite as often the other way around. Um, and I think that that also has a lot to do with it. I do see the the all out assault on uh, whiteness. It's getting really, really vicious, frankly. Um, and yeah, I do think that this is a you know, kind of a lifeline, and I think people take it. I think a lot of it is uh, peer pressure. Uh, you you see basically one. A uh, person sort of, I'm going to call it convert to transgenderism because it is sort of a cult. Uh, well, not sort of, it is. Um, and you get kind of this cluster effect. There's a lot of brainwashing stuff that goes on, a lot of with technology and whatnot. Um, and, and I do see that, absolutely. It, it is another weapon. Um, and then you cleave these people off. Many of them will not be able to, most of them will not be able to reproduce. Uh, so you further suppress the birth rates. Um, you are able to weaponize them. And then many of them then turn to active grooming uh, and so-called activism and other things themselves. So uh, it, it's a multiplier. Um, as far as big pharma is concerned, absolutely, they are uh, integral to this process. Um, the very disturbing, one of the very disturbing connections that I uh, was able to make was uh, there was a massive overlap between the uh, HIV-AIDS uh, researchers and the HIV-AIDS establishment and the onset of the COVID-19 stuff, uh, whether it be Fauci or any of these uh, other uh, figures. Uh, and this, so the, the big pharma, uh, obviously they have a major major investment in the homosexual population with the HIV drugs and the retrovirals and whatnot. But if you go and you really start digging into the COVID-19, there are a lot of other connections, not least of which is the fact there are 18 inserts for HIV AIDS in the COVID-19 disease. Uh, so this is something that was created in a lab as well. Uh, and it is directly related to the project that's been going I'm on. I'm sorry, could you please elaborate on that? What you mean by an insert? Well, essentially there are uh, chains of the COVID-19 that are um, identical in structure to the HIV. Um, and the idea is essentially that uh, COVID-19 has a lot of similarities to HIV in the way that it acts. Uh, it's a, obviously significantly weaker, but it is almost, um, its mechanisms are, are eerily similar. Uh, 
Uh, and what I mean by that is essentially to attack the immune system, provoke basically unhinged autoimmunity. Um, it is essentially the same mechanism. So what I think is it is a cousin of, I, I cannot prove, of course, that uh, HIV AIDS was created in a lab, but I have my suspicions. And I think the, the similarity uh, in terms of its structure um, belies that fact and the fact that we're seeing the same institutions and actors crop up. Uh, so we have a, a study population in the transgenders who have astronomical rates, incidence rates of HIV AIDS way beyond the average population. And so a little of it is unclear to me exactly where it all aligns. I'm still trying to research that. But I'm seeing a lot of disturbing overlap there. I had a couple more thoughts. Uh, we've mentioned quite a few reasons why this agenda might be uh, be being pushed by various groups. And I think there's different incentives at play. I think it, for something this confusing, um, it's tempting to want to try to just set it aside as crazy or the other. But in fact, I think it's serving a purpose of creating the normal people to become the other. And I think that's one of the reasons why it's being pushed by the political class. It's, it's used to identify people who will speak out against, you know, something that is plainly obvious that someone who is changing their clothing and makeup is not changing their, their sex. But if you do that, when the culture tells you not to do that, you're the troublemaker. And I think we've seen the same thing with, with COVID and a lot of this uh, black lives matter, burning the country down. Uh, yet, uh, the white people who complained about voter fraud or called the domestic terrorists. I mean, there's just so much hypocrisy in society. I think this is just yet another way for the powers that be to find the troublemakers who are, are not willing to obey the culture. I, so uh, one, one thing that's come to my mind about this and as I've always had a suspicion about is the extent to which these kinds of things, considering how in your face they are and how they, they go against, you know, the most fundamental thing, which is that, you know, children should be safe from uh, predators and, and people who want to hurt them. Uh, it really does seem to me that there has to be an element, whether it's by design or it's something that they're going to obviously have to take into their calculations as to what you find here is to be bait. Because I do know that when it comes to the dra so-called drag queen story hour, uh, in a particular American city, I do remember a case in which when they did one of these things, they had uh, snipers on the rooftops of the local library where this was taking place. And much as is always the case with the things that, well, to be blunt, the things that Jews do is they're coming at you and they're expecting some kind of response because at least morally speaking, a response would be warranted. So. Uh, where do you see this shaking out in terms of how people are going to react to that, how it was calculated that people would react and how much of that reaction is, is part of the program itself? Oh, that's a good question. Oh, uh, well, I, I definitely think that um, it, it is designed to 
Well, I think that there's a couple things. So I think that it would be very advantageous if someone were to react uh, because it would feed into the pre pre-programmed narrative of uh, transphobia, I would say. Um, I think that they are looking to create villains, and I think that they, once again, um, of course, people that object to this are not the bad guys, obviously. Um, but I think the whole thing is that if you can be moved to do something, you can start using that for propaganda purposes, and I, I think that to some degree they want that. Uh, I think that it's also part of the whole power trip that they're on, and I think that it ties into this aspect that essentially they are trying to rub your nose in it uh, and let you know that you are powerless uh, as far as they're concerned. Uh, now, are you actually powerless? Uh, there are probably conversations to be had about that. Uh, but in the traditional way of going and basically trying to get this thing shut down or uh, protesting about it or whatever, uh, they're effectively closing those avenues off. Um, and I think that this is uh, certainly by design. Um, but it's also an excuse to be able to, um, they're sort of like, I, I sort of view them as almost like uh, victory parades, like military victory parades. Uh, after the uh, bulldozer revolution in Serbia, uh, so-called revolution. It was a, one of these color revolutions, a total astroturf job uh, uh, by NATO to get rid of Milosevic. By the way, the American, <laughs> the American general who uh, oversaw the bombing and murder of you know thousands of Serbian civilians, uh, uh, Wesley Clark, who said uh, there is no place for monolithic uh, ethnic states in Europe in the 21st century. Of course, Jewish. Um, but anyway, the first order of business was to have a pride parade. Uh, and I think that is a celebration of all that is unnatural and defective, and it's designed on purpose to infuriate uh, and humiliate and hopefully demoralize you. And when you see things like you have snipers protecting, uh, as I mentioned, a lot of the, the uh, men who are involved in these drag queen story hours are uh, convicted sexual predators. So you have snipers protecting sexual predators. Uh, I don't think that any right-thinking person can see that and believe that this system has one shred of credibility or legitimacy, uh, but that is not what the people in power are even concerned about anymore. For a very long time, that was, that was part of the, the, the neoliberal system, was to maintain the aura uh, or the illusion, I would say, of, of legitimacy. Uh, they have dispensed with that now, um, and now it is getting into the sort of uh, iron fist phase. And, and that requires us to be much smarter about how we think about these things. But I, I do think they're looking for that well-intentioned boomer to show up and say, yo, shut this down. Uh, and then they'll brand the guy a domestic terrorist and, you know, talk about there will be endless whining about transphobia and, you know, all these other things. Well, that, that sort of reminds me of when in the 80s and 90s there were a lot of the Christians who were bombing abortion clinics or allegedly bombing. I don't even know at this point if I trust any of it, but uh, I think they would, they would welcome such an act because then they could clamp down even harder, just like they did with the, uh, the Capitol protest they're calling a riot. Um, I had one more question and, and then I, I do have uh, some specific 
points that I thought were very, uh, very valuable that you made in the book that I'd like to present to the audience and hear you uh, clarify and, and expand on them. But uh, one of the last, I think, possible motivations behind this uh, trans agenda uh, is I think it's it's a very simple one, and you you had mentioned the financial class, uh, the bankers, uh, the finance industry, uh, funding some of this. I'm not familiar with the specific donors involved, but one of the the theories I've had for a while now is frankly a lot of the, just this uh, identity politics stuff in general, including uh, the sexual stuff, but also the race stuff, and uh, God knows what else. Uh, is really a, a distraction campaign by the oligarchs to get the the plebes, the poor people, to fight amongst each other and not notice that the wealthy have gotten almost exponentially wealthier in the past couple decades and in the past year even. Uh, the richest people in the world have arguably doubled their wealth uh, and influence. I mean, relatively speaking, they certainly have because everybody else has gotten poorer. But if everybody is worried more about drag queen story hour, which they should be, uh, I think they they're simply distracted from actually what's going on in the uh, you know the money markets. And so, can you can you trace some of the connections here? Because you mentioned it in passing, but can you could you flesh out in more detail? What are the uh, the wealthies? Uh, connections to this type of stuff? Like, are there banks? Are there individuals funding these uh, these programs? I don't even know what to call them, but uh, do you have any details on the uh, the wealthy funding the trans agenda? Oh, yes, absolutely. So uh, what, what you'll see is things like, for example, um, you know, it, it went, first of all, most of these uh, major firms have what they call like a LGB networks or whatever to begin with. So you'll have, you know, Goldman Sachs, for example. Uh, now, the if you look at uh, institutions like Black Lives Matter, uh, this is one where they derive most of their funding from uh, Thousand Currents, which is a, a big... Um, uh, another one of these NGOs, and they have connections. I mean, well, one of the their, I think it's their vice president of finance or communications is a is a literal terrorist. Uh, went to jail for I think fifty eight years for having like five hundred or seven hundred pounds of uh, TNT and helped Assad uh, Shakur uh, was was planning on trying to get the cop killer Assad Shakur uh, to escape. Uh, pardoned, of course, by Bill Clinton at the same time, Mark Rich and these others uh, types of guys were. Um, but anyway, that this is a, a figure that is entrenched in this power structure. And so then you start to see these institutions give donations to your uh, Thousand Currents and your other uh, BLM adjacent organizations, which are then uh, fomenting unrest and racial grievances at the same time that you have absolutely that you have uh, the oligarchs growing in power substantially. So, for example, it is not a surprise that uh, in April 2020, all of a sudden there was a massive uptick in media coverage around George Floyd and these other people, because this is 
this is this was the exact time that BlackRock was starting to basically call all of the shots uh, behind the scenes. That this is there were a lot of financial things that were going on. Uh, the Fed was basically printing trillions of dollars. Uh, they they all of the uh, frustration over the closure of businesses um, and the loss of jobs was about to boil over. And what did they do? They they called an audible and they stopped focusing so much on coronavirus and they started focusing on racial unrest or how coronavirus itself was racist or something. Um, but these same institutions that were gaining uh, substantially by having coronavirus wipe out all of these small and mid-sized businesses across the country and, and world in many cases uh, are also responsible for ceding money to a lot of these organizations that then go out and protest on behalf of uh, Black Lives Matter or any of these other organizations. And so it's absolutely uh, coordinated to get people focusing on niche concerns, uh, made up concerns in most of these cases, rather than having a broad based coalition that looked like it was going to crystallize around Occupy Wall Street. Uh, and it's not a surprise that when that was gaining significant traction, both on the left and right, we started to see massive racial unrest and race baiting going on at the same time. I mean, think the, it's the same people behind the scenes. And you see with, uh, it does not matter what the administration is because the financial machine has taken on a life of its own. That's, that's more powerful than the state. I had a few notes from uh, reading your book that I thought were very notable to the audience. Uh, in case anyone is still undecided about the possible consequences of uh, sexual modification surgery. Uh, I, I doubt anyone in our audience is really inclined that way or knows even anyone who is inclined that way. But Fuck no. in terms of the uh, in terms of the propaganda war, the info war for those who are rational minded and who will look at hard evidence and be open minded to where the evidence takes them. I thought your book was excellent in documenting a lot of very strong uh, numbers, quantitative and also just anecdotal examples of people getting really screwed up by some of this uh, transgender surgery stuff uh, and also hormone therapy, I should add. Um, you were mentioning that uh, children as young as eight uh, are receiving drugs in some places. Uh, there's also a and this this I had a double take, but correct me if I'm wrong, but there is a potential decline in IQs because of this stuff uh, when you take these hormone drugs um, up to eight points, which, you know, if you're talking about an average IQ of someone is 100 and they drop to 90, they're borderline criminal status at that point and they can barely hold a job. Uh, that that's pretty catastrophic. Uh, and then many others have noticed that, uh, these suicide rates of people before and after transgender surgery is very similar. And so arguably it's not really affecting their self-esteem. Um, but I, the, the health, the health consequences, I thought you documented really well. Could you maybe expand on that, Scott, a little bit? Oh, yes, absolutely. So, I mean, obviously there hasn't been a ton of research into this because they want it suppressed. But in the research that I was able to find, there is, uh, yes, there is an adverse effect on the IQs or intellects of the individuals. So for example, 
Not only does it arrest the IQ, as in developmentally freeze the brain. So a a seven-year-old who's been on the hormone blockers for two years has the same intellect that he had when he was five. There's also indication that it it can, in fact, cause a a drop in IQ. So that's absolutely correct. Uh, In fact, the evidence on that from what I was able to gather is is pretty clear. Uh, To say nothing of all the other uh, deleterious effects, you know, uh, it's not a puberty, it's not a pause on puberty. Uh, it, it's an actual retardation uh, in, in, in every sense of the word. Um, and uh, I mean, to call it child abuse is the understatement of the century. It's, it's, uh, it's well, what should be done to these people? I, I, I don't want to get the show shut down, so I won't say, but uh, it's not, it's, it's horrifying, frankly. Uh, you know, we're talking about everything from not just in, not just in terms of intellect, but also all, all sorts of other uh, very negative physical uh, effects. Um, and yes, the suicide rate is actually higher for those that go through with the surgeries, um, because contrary to the constant uh, screeching about conversion therapy, you know, with uh, neocon Mike Pence there. Uh, this is actually conversion therapy. They're promising you when you get these surgeries, when you go through all this. You will be made whole. Uh, and that is not what happens. They get to the other side and they find they have the same psychological issues. And it is a psychological issue that needs to be addressed, but it is not allowed to be addressed. It's being purged from the diagnostic manual. It's gone from disorder to dysphoria, and it will probably not be in the next one. So the actual issues that these people are facing are not addressed, they are sold a bill of goods. And they get on the other side and they have the same issues. And so they kill themselves in, 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 in absolutely astronomical, astronomical numbers, uh, you know, closing in on, by some calculations, half of these people attempt suicide. Wow. You mentioned the, uh, I mean, oh, there have been ahead. a lot of crimes in medicine, but we've reached a point now where the Hippocratic Oath has become it like this is people have violated their oaths on so many levels that I mean, by being complicit, whether they are themselves participating in these kinds of things or whether they are saying nothing about them from the perspective. I don't know. In, in the process of researching your book, did you have a chance to talk to anyone on the inside of uh, medical profession? who have anything to say about this, who could shed some light on the degree to which people have betrayed their, their basic honor in this kind of way? Uh, unfortunately, I was not able to get really to, to discuss anything with anyone. Um, you know, I, th- I think that people are very nervous um, about saying anything that doesn't toe the line. Um, I do mention a few organizations that have come under fire. I believe it's the... Uh, I can't remember if it's the Academy or College of Pediatrics, one or the other. One's, one's the bad one, one's the good one. Uh, uh, one of them has basically been called a hate group uh, by the Southern Poverty Law Center for speaking out against this. So there are people that are, uh, but the general rank and file of the, uh, of the medical establishment is not saying anything about this. Uh, and it is, you know, it's, it's very disheartening. Um, 
but they've been uh, they've been beaten down, um, and and that's uh, uh, you know I, I spoke with a couple of feminists. Um, it's probably the closest that I could get to uh, any, any not that they're medical professionals by any stretch, but that was probably the closest I could get to uh, someone kind of I guess nominally on the inside speaking out against it, but uh, nothing on the record. Well, you, you mentioned the uh, Diagnostic Statistical Manual, the DSM, which is used by psychologists in the United States to, uh, or psychiatrists, I, I might even include to prescribe drugs, but also just diagnose people. Um, th- that name in and of itself is sort of telling because it has this very highfalutin, scientific-sounding uh, name where we're using statistics and diagnostics and we're prescribing you a an instruction manual just like your your refrigerator has a, an instruction manual like it's a it's a deterministic machine but it, it's not i mean psychology is pseudoscience at best uh if anybody's ever taken a psychology quiz online you know how varied the results can be uh and psychology in my opinion is interesting but it by is no means a a real science because you're dealing with subjects that are incredibly complex and varied and the repeatability of these studies is oftentimes very difficult to achieve um and i guess maybe one example of this is uh homosexuals who used to be uh considered uh according to the dsm uh having a mental illness uh, and no longer the case. Uh, And if I'm hearing this correctly, the transgender people are no longer considered to be mentally ill. Uh, Who determines this? I mean, it's like a priesthood or a, uh, a group of rabbis, I should add, because, you know, we, there's no secret that there's a lot of, uh, a lot of Jewish people in psychology. And so, what is your take on this this organization and this manual, uh, this uh, Talmud, so to speak, that they they use to give these uh, holy holy decrees upon the population uh, by whose authority I don't know, but they somehow have the influence to make these decisions in court hearings, in medical proceedings, uh, in uh, the case of red flag laws, which I anticipate to be rolled out uh, ad nauseum with the Biden-Kamala regime, uh, the right to bear arms. I mean, it, it, it never ends, uh, the, the scope at which these people have power over us uh, through this pseudoscientific stuff, where, where they admittedly have changed their opinion multiple times. Um, has the science changed? I don't think so. I think you you very clearly demonstrate in the case of, I believe it was just the homosexuals, but I'm sure the transgenders are no different in this case, that the people that have uh, the tendency to be uh, homosexual or transgendered, they have a 400, and this is just by my reading, but a on average, it would seem, or the tendency would be to be a 400 to 700 percent chance higher a chance of having a mental disorder such as bipolarity uh, uh, borderline personality disorder and and these again are, are somewhat subjective but they have not cast these aside and the correlation with these other disorders seems to be 
very statistically significantly stronger in the cases of these areas where they have deemed it to be uh, not uh, a mental illness. And that that just seems strange. It's sort of like saying, um, well, I've got a car and we no longer consider um, flames coming out the uh, the back of the uh, the, uh, the exhaust pipe indicative of maybe a uh, a problem in the engine, but we will still um, recommend that you bring it into the mechanic if the uh, check engine light comes on. I mean, there's there's lots of clues here as to problems, and if they're just going to put one aside as no longer being valid, they cannot hide the remainder of the smoking ruins that is the, the what the remains of the car in the case of the human, the uh, the suicide uh, victim of somebody who had a mental disorder, like thinking they're the opposite sex that they're actually born with. And so it, it's just, a, again, the, the amount of hypocrisy is extraordinary. And I, I'd love to hear your commentary on the psychology industry's role in all this, uh, the DSM and how it's used and abused. Um, I, I've thought a long time about this, uh, this profession, so to, so to speak, and I've have, I have a lot of uh, skepticism of it. So I'd love to hear your your thoughts. Well, yes, absolutely. So the um, you know, the APA basically recently just came out and, and said that. Uh, essentially made its a statement on masculinity itself being toxic. Uh, so, you know, we can see where they're, where they're at. Uh, and yes, it's essentially when it was, uh, when homosexuality was removed from uh, the DSM, it was the decision, um, the uh, largely Jewish, of course. Uh, now the overlap is not only is there, you have this kind of pseudoscientific, as I mentioned with uh, everything from anthropology to uh, it will add psychology in there and, and to, you know, trans studies and this kind of thing. Uh, all of these things are, are obviously Jewish dominated in their uh, intellectual um, leadership, uh, very closed. And yes, very, I think, very Talmudic in the way that it is. Uh, they sort of tease out them, you know, in the way that you can get an abortion on demand is sort of in the Constitution somewhere teased out through Talmudic reasoning, you know, uh, you know millennia of inbreeding apparently makes you able to be able to uh, suss out, you know, incredibly complex texts. Uh, uh, but the point is here that it, what we're looking at is yet another assault on uh, not just decency and Gentile society and mores, uh, but, but just reality itself. Um, and this is what happens when you when you are given to the wild, most wild excess, where the the, the group in power is completely closed, uh, and is essentially dictating the terms to those beneath them. Now they're in the population group of not, of the homosexuals. You absolutely are correct. The incidence rates of mental illness are extremely high. The interesting thing here, uh, and I actually note this in the book. Jews are uh, significantly more likely to identify as homosexual than any other ethnicity in the United States, uh, several percentage points higher than white Gentiles. Uh, additionally, Jews are at very high risk. Uh, it's called the, I believe it's called the NDST3 gene. It's something like that, uh, which is a marker for schizophrenia. 
uh, and Jews are significantly at an elevated risk for schizophrenia uh, compared to the general population. So I do not think that it's an overlap that we're finding all of these. Uh, sorry, I do not think it's an accident that we're finding this overlap uh, where the nexus of sexual perversity, uh, congenital subversiveness, mental illness, deviance, homosexuality, transgender, it, the sheer volume of Jews in this book is absurd. <laughs> I mean, you, you, you want to talk about every single time. It's every single time when you're reading this book. You've got to be kidding me. Uh, but it's, it's not an exaggeration. I mean, the, the volume is, is more pronounced in the transgender and transhumanist realms than any other realm that I have encountered. Now, the psychology and all the other pseudosciences, they beef up each other because it is part of this network. So the way the money functions, the funding, the way their power structure fun, uh, functions, the idea laundering, the money laundering, however you want to look at it, it is all on this network-based model. And so they reinforce each other, but by, they are by nature intertwined. And you can't really address, for example, demographic trans transformation without looking at the centrality of Jews. But you will find the same thing if you look at transgenderism. If you go into the excesses of neoliberal capitalism and Wall Street, you'll find the same thing. What are the key connections between communism and capitalism? Well, look at the funding that goes from Wall Street in the 1910s to the October Revolution in the USSR. You'll see uh, not just uh, Jews on Wall Street, but also people like Olaf Ashberg, uh, the so-called Red Banker in Sweden. It's all there. Um, and I think that this is, this is the... It's not, my point is it's not just isolated to, say, psychology as a feeder and protector in some ways or, or uh, legitimizer of transgenderism but it is yes this very much a priestly class we see that uh, science is becoming that new priestly class with all the very strange uh, changes in rules for for covid like wear 15 masks they say you have to follow the science but it's not science it's it's a dictate from a, uh, a rabbi telling you look wear the diaper on your face uh, now, Fauci is not, a, is not a rabbi. I understand that, but he's from, I think, Bensonhurst or something. I mean, come on. Uh, so he's obviously uh, it, it immersed in this world, let's say. Um, but even if, even if one were not, uh, the society has become so thoroughly um, immersed in this kind of relativistic uh, goop that it becomes very difficult without a, a strong center to really understand where one stands anymore. Um, and again, that's all by design. You know, it was designed to knock down each foundational pillar of the society and turn it into the open society. I mean, this is the goal of the open society foundations. And each one of these things is designed to further atomize, demoralize, and break people down. Each thing feeds into another, it protects another, and it supports another to that point you now, have a uh, a section here on poland and uh, i'm going to read this uh, you said in the kabuki theater of politics despite overwhelming objection to the project 
the Polish trans politician Anna Grodzka uh, proposed the Gender Accordance Act, which deliberately avoids the terms transgender and intersex and is, quote, inclusive of an of anyone whose gender assigned at birth differs from their gender identity. And you go on to say that it doesn't really matter because no one in the Polish government is going to approve this. And the EU is going to try and initiate some kind of top-down ruling on this subject anyways. Uh, But the reality of this is that, as you point out, you have an agent of the open society within Poland who is examining Polish law and politics internally and making a signal to the outside world, here is an attack vector by which you can pry open Polish society. You can exploit these legal loopholes as much as you want in Polish society to get around uh, popular objection to uh, this cultural phenomenon, or this legal phenomenon, because Poland is one of the few places um, that appears to have a government that is, for the time being, uh, fairly well united against this sort of thing. And there are strict rules in the Polish civil code that uh, make it very difficult for transgenderism to be recognized as some kind of um, discriminatory identity, if you will. Um, and do you do you see this happening elsewhere, perhaps, where uh, agents of this sort of network will um, either be groomed in a country or sent there potentially uh, to find loopholes and find uh, hairline fractures in the legal code in the culture that can be exploited via kind of outside attack. Uh, oh, yes, absolutely. Um, I mean, this is very central to the color revolutions model. Uh, you know, Soros in particular is very good with, um, and I say good in, in terms of effective for their project with training people who will then become uh, uh, major figures in government uh, at the Central European University or through different types of uh, fellowships and these kinds of things. Uh, the CIA and the, the U.S. State Department, a lot of other organizations do this. The foreign, um, I forget the exact term for it, but there's like a foreign exchange sort of thing that uh, the U.S. State Department runs. USAID, uh, all these different organizations, so both NGO and governmental, uh, they're very adept at producing these basically insiders who will then go and signal externally. Uh, I think Belarus is a very clear example. Um, you have, um, I forget the, the woman's name, but she's uh, basically saying, oh, the election was stolen. Well, there's no evidence the election was stolen. She just said it was stolen. So, okay, we're supposed to take her at her word. Uh, and then, of course, signaling, you know, oh, well, you know, uh, Lukashenko is a, is, a, is a strong man. and we, We've got to go in there. and We need to bring democracy by, you know, <laughs> undermining a legitimate election with no evidence for any kind of fraud. You know, meanwhile, of course, you talk about the one in the United States and, you know, you're on a list. Um, it's a joke, really. But but that's the whole thing. It's it is the Kabuki theater. It is, as I mentioned, the United States, they no longer care about the pretense of legit, the pretense of legitimacy uh, where they are looking to do this and cast doubt upon the process 
uh, in the name of democracy uh, and trying to say, well, we need to give more voice to people, uh, you know, the marginalized, the whole rigmarole, uh, or casting doubt on the results of elections uh, that are legitimate or leaders who are strong and in the, uh, governing in the self-interest of their people. Uh, you know, in the interest of saying we need more transparency, we need, you know, they'll send the election monitors, well, who, you know, from the UN or the EU or, or wherever. And they'll, they'll, uh, they'll make sure that these things are supposedly in compliance. And what they're doing there is, of course, trying to find weak spots uh, to get the leader or regime in question out, uh, to bring these people back into, to bring these countries into the fold of, um, well, let's just call it what it is, global homo uh, or NATO, however you, want to t however you want to think about it. But look at uh, Armenia as an example, what's happened in Armenia. Um, the Ukraine is another good example. Uh, it's, a, it's a tried and tested pattern. Uh, and it, it, it is context specific as far as what methods they will use. Uh, you know, but uh, in Britain, for example, you could have an election, but if we don't like the result, you're not getting the result. Um, and so they, but they, they switch gears, they uh, code signal, they have different activists or individuals implanted um, in different places, both high and low, uh, who can be activated depending on what the needs are for the scenario. Now, they war game all this stuff out ahead of time. I mean, if you go and look at event 201 uh, for the coronavirus, that was in October, uh, I believe October uh, 2019. Uh, and that was the Gates Foundation, World Health Organization, and uh, Johns Hopkins. So, you know, same people who are also deeply invested in the transgender industrial complex. Um, you'll, you'll, again, you'll find it everywhere. And, and what they're doing is they war game out these scenarios, and they try to then make reality conform to the scenarios that they have projected ahead of time. And they have contingencies based upon running these high-level exercises. Um, but they, but yes, they, to answer the question, they do have assets uh, in the thousands that they will, both on the street level and in high positions. The Prime Minister of Georgia uh, is another example, is from the Soros school. Uh, the last two Prime Ministers of Estonia, or Presidents, rather, of Estonia. Um, the, the lists go on and on. Um, so when they can't fix the election, um, they'll find ways to undermine it. Well, they've um, so, even done this to uh, Eastern Europe. I mean, I was shocked to see uh, uh, you have a passage here in October 2019, Rainbow Families Croatia. Let that sink in. Uh, <laughs> Rainbow Families Croatia held a successful crowdfunding campaign for its second coloring book for preschool children entitled My Rainbow Families Fun Day Out. In June 2019, in a campaign coordinated by the magazine Jmonas, 10 Lithuanian brands released their logos in rainbow colors to support Baltic pride. With the Please Clap campaign, as we expected, receiving a Baltic Best Advertising Award. In October 2019, Lithuanian national broadcaster LRT aired an online documentary called Colors including segments glamorizing same-sex parenting. Uh, <laughs> what is this, like less than two decades after joining NATO? You, you have 
rainbow families, Croatia, as it, it you know thrust to the forefront of the uh, of the uh, national political scene, the national cultural scene in the country. Uh, you know, like Lithuania in particular uh, is a. It's hard to believe Lithuania even has internet. And, you know, yet we have uh, national broadcasters uh, creating whole, you know, kind of documentaries on their own now uh, where they are talking about same-sex parenting. Uh, to an, do you think that to an extent this is um, maybe also driven by cultural and economic envy of the West? And there are those potentially in these countries who correlate uh, the cultural phenomena in the West and the West's current wealth as having to go hand in hand. And that in order to attain wealth, you need to emulate the West's progression to this point. Do you think that there's an element of that? Or is it just more likely that there's just agents who have been kind of put there since the fall of the Soviet Union and the fall of Yugoslavia to uh, slowly turn these countries into uh, lab experiments? Well, I, I definitely think that there are probably some um, some individuals in the in the general population that sort of expect that that's sort of the direction of progress, and it needs to kind of go that way. And they, it's sort of like a status signaling. Um, I, I think, in terms of the the vast majority of the people, though, uh, are hate this stuff, frankly, um, and I, I do think it is largely an elite driven project um most of the figures there were trained in the west or they had some uh involvement or you know the old regime was pushed aside and they found new people to install uh i, I generally view what's happening there as being imposed upon the population i think that there are probably a small percentage of people probably you know like the typical um sort of shit lib i guess you could say that that uh is on board with it um, that doesn't have any particular uh, external influence on them other than what they see uh, that, that probably does correlate, uh, you know, openness with uh, prosperity, progress, whatever. Um, uh, as far as I can tell, uh, and I've done quite a bit of research, that's probably what my next book will be about, The Color Revolutions. Um, as far as I can tell, it does appear to be largely uh, uh, driven by the U.S. State Department intelligence agencies, uh, the European Union, and NATO, uh, and to, to a lesser extent, the United Nations. I do see the United Nations involved somewhat. Uh, I think the United Nations is more actively involved in other aspects, although they'll be sort of deferred to uh, superficially on, on certain things. Um, but of course, uh, they do want a one world government. I mean, they do want a globalist system. Um, and, and perhaps the United Nations will take that form as, as the front for governance. But a lot of the real action as far as bringing these countries into, well, the economic system, which then, of course, paves the way for the social uh, transformation, that is uh, definitely something that is being worked on both through external pressure uh, sanctions and all sorts of other things. And, and if, if they're not successful, then they'll just go to, I mean, Yugoslavia and Serbia, they'll just go to war with you, um, you know, and, and, and cleave off mineral assets in Kosovo and other things like that, or turn your country into a giant 
garage sale like South Africa. Um, you know, I've got chapters in there dealing with Ireland and South Africa, um, how they do the same playbook. Well, uh, the, the progression of, of Ireland was shocking. I mean, just, just, and you know, I, I'm not the only one who's no, who's noticed that. And I was glad that you noticed that as well. And that, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but it was only in 2015 that, uh, was it abortion or gay marriage that was basically legalized in Ireland? I know that they kind of came, there was like a one, two punch, but I, I'm trying to remember which one sort of came first. I, I think abortion uh, might've been later. It was abortion. Well, yeah, it was like, <laughs> You noted that um, basically in 2015, you have the abortion, then around that time you have the election of the gay foreigner to the head of the Irish state, uh, the gay half-Indian man. Uh, and then five years later, you effectively have multiple trans rights organizations acting with impunity in the education system of the country. Like It, it was such a swift... Uh, sort of rollout uh and it's it's unbelievably shocking to look at that and and look at ireland even just 20 years ago or 25 years ago when it was regarded as kind of a regressive <laughs> high you know deeply catholic uh almost backwards place uh but you know like well yeah they were not too long ago waging an armed struggle against fellow europeans right you know, for territory and sovereignty <laughs> yeah i mean, it, I mean it, it's really yeah just an and it goes also climb. fast yeah and this yeah, brings and, me to you know scott oh no go ahead did you have go something ahead. else Hans? no 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 go ahead okay well scott i know you don't want to spoil the end of your book and i won't ask you to but you know, all this conversation is definitely leading towards questions of the end game. And, you know, in the final analysis, they really are going for broke. I mean, this is not something that you can go back from without the accounts being settled. I mean, we're not going to forget, and we certainly are not, not going to forgive this kind of these crimes against children that are being committed the world over especially to our own people. Now, I don't know, uh, the people we're dealing with, they have a characteristic arrogance and also mental illnesses, as you mentioned, where I do think they're ultimately delusional, but what's next for this? I mean, they've tried 109 times, I guess. Uh, do they think this one is uh, the magical, the magical, you know, final victory where they're going to turn the, the earth ball into some forsaken wasteland that they can somehow rule over. I mean, this is poisoning the well on a scale that has never been tried before. What are your thoughts on without, you know, feel free to withhold some of the details that you, you'd like people to, to read in your book, but uh, please give us your thoughts on, on the end game, because I can tell you from experience for people who are not radicals, like I guess you would say that we are, at least in the sense that we're people who try to, we, we take reality seriously and we're at least engaged with it. But I have not seen any political or, you know, politically adjacent issue drive people to a violent frenzy the same way that this has. Yes, I, th I think that that is absolutely, uh, is absolutely true. I think the, th <laughs> It, I, I was listening to um, 
oh gosh, I can't remember who it is now, but they, they described it as basically the greatest human pressure cooker of all time because there is nowhere to go. Um, it's not in a country or a block of countries. It's basically the entire planet. And I, I do agree, they're going for broke. It, it, if the project is successful, I think you will have augmented human reality, probably people who upload their consciousness, and consciousness into a box. Um, I do think that they will try to depopulate the earth uh, substantially because through automation and things like that, they can get rid of all the plebs that they don't want to have to deal with anymore. Uh, but in the meantime, as if we can all be retarded and, and made into, uh, you know, a sort of uh, mocha serfs, then all the better. Um, and I think that that is, that is precisely what they aim for. Um, eventually, of course, as I mentioned, they, it will be a full sort of transhumanist playground for them. Uh, and I absolutely believe that that's, that's the intent and that's where they want to go with it. And however, uh, whatever specific form that takes, I'm not 100% sure, but it's basically going to be horrific. I mean, I don't know if you guys saw, they brought like a ferret. They cloned a dead ferret, brought it back to life after like 33 years or something. They're making human chimeras in, in China. I mean, this, is, this stuff is beyond horrific. And it's, it doesn't end unless it's made to end. And I, I, I will state that the Institute for Sexology or Sex Research uh, in, in Germany, the way that it met its end was it would burn to the ground, um, as it should have been, quite frankly. Uh, and it's, this is the whole thing, oh, the Nazis burning books. Well, <laughs> they were taking kids on tours to see like dildo machines inside of this thing. So there's a reason it got permanently shut down. Uh, and I think that this is, this is the thing, though. If you look at all of the so-called elites, they're all involved in this human trafficking. They're all involved in, uh, you know, uh, raping uh, underage, underage children, uh, particularly white children, of course. Epstein um, was known to go specifically for like the most Aryan-looking, uh, often Eastern European or Aryan-looking uh, girls. And so there is a very sick perversion here. Uh, there is a specific hatred, of course, of, of not all Jews, obviously, but the ones in power, certainly, for, uh, for whites. And that hatred is manifesting itself in a lot of ways. Uh, but I think in general, they don't regard anyone who is not on board with this project as fully human and as an obstacle. Uh, and I believe that Christianity is also another major aspect that they want to destroy and dismantle that they view as being perhaps, in fact, probably a primary, th not, not pr definitely the primary threat uh, beyond racial considerations. And I think that that's one of the one of the key ways Ireland was won was through the subversion of the Catholic Church. Um, obviously, Ireland, in as I document, that was more external pressure brought to bear than an inside job. But they'll use whatever techniques. Uh, but the goal is, of course, global and total control, control over every aspect of everyone who is not an intimate of this cabal. Uh, now, it is worth mentioning here that it is not all Jews that comprise this cabal, but they are all cabalists, let's say. Um, they are all enmeshed. So, for example, Kamala Harris. Well, who's her husband? Uh, Joe Biden. Who did all of his kids marry? Uh, Trump. Who did his daughter marry? Uh, Clinton. Who did, who did she marry? Uh, Chelsea Clinton. If you catch my drift here. So, they're all on board, or at least intermarried. Uh, into this, well, synagogue, 
uh, of the way things are being run as far as this kind of global uh, it's not even Weimar though it's way beyond that it's like a transhumanist nightmare of like augmented half human creatures and, and machines and uploaded consciousness and all these other things I mean Ray Kurzweil goes around talking about he likes to upload himself into some like CGI 25 year old woman it's, it's, it's just beyond comprehension to how perverse and horrifying the future that they have designed is. Uh, and I think that anyone with any shred of decency has to understand, yes, they have particular hatred for certain groups that they single out uh, for humiliation above and beyond and specific destruction above and beyond others. But they view everyone who is not on board with this as a pawn and an inconvenience to eventually be engineered out of existence. I am trying to find a solution Got a certain person Trying to find a solution Got a certain person With this modern surgery They change him from he to she But behind that lipstick rouge and face I got to know if she is or is she country, but for Denmark, he tried to live the life of a man, but that was not in accord with nature's plan, so he underwent this operation, and came back home to shock the nation, but behind that lipstick rouge and paint, I got to know if she is, or if she ain't. They made her a popular celebrity Out of public sentiment She got movie contract and plenty engagement People came out of curiosity To see this amazing freak of the century But behind that lipstick rouge and paint I still wonder if she is Or is she ain't of this modern age now she making plenty money because of hormones and plastic surgery join down 20,000 a week and not one listening to this record could get a peek so behind that lipstick rouge and paint what do you think she is boy I know she is <laughs> 